Hi everyone, this is Dan and welcome to the Rapid Boards Review Podcast. This is episode number 26 of the podcast and in this episode we continue our discussion on high yield triads. This is part two. Uh, there will be a third part as well and if you haven't checked out part one, make sure to check uh, that episode out as well to round out your understanding of all the triads that you need to know for the step one examination. As always, thank you so much for listening and I really hope you find the content of this episode useful. All right, high yield triads part two. Let's start with the Cushing reflex. What is the triad for the Cushing reflex? So that would be hypertension, bradycardia, and respiratory dysfunction. Hypertension, bradycardia, and respiratory dysfunction. That's the Cushing reflex. Now, what is like the cause of the Cushing reflex? What is the root cause of it? Good. So that would be increased intracranial pressure. Now, the increased intracranial pressure actually constricts the arterioles in the brain. This leads to cerebral ischemia, which increases the partial pressure of CO2 in the area and also decreases the pH. Now, when that happens, you get the sympathetic nervous system, which responds by increasing blood pressure. So that's how you get the hypertension. Now, why do you get the bradycardia? So it turns out that the increased blood pressure activates stretch receptors, and these stretch receptors are peripheral baroreceptor, or peripheral baroreceptors rather, and they induce the bradycardia. Um, and then, how do you get the um, the disordered breathing? How does that occur? Good. So the cerebral ischemia it causes hypoxia to the respiratory regulation centers in the brain, and this disorders the breathing. Okay, so let's break that all down. So where are the baroreceptors located? So they're located in two places. The first place is the aortic arch, and the second place is the carotid sinus. Now, if you look at an anatomy picture, the carotid sinus is the dilated region right at the carotid bifurcation. Now. Where do the uh, where do the baroreceptors transmit signal through? That is to say, like what nerves do they transmit their signal through? So the aortic arch transmits its single uh, signal through the vagus nerve, which is cranial nerve ten, and the carotid sinus translates its signal through the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is cranial nerve nine. Okay, so basically you have these baroreceptors which are caused by, uh, which are activated by stretch, and then they send a signal through the vagus nerve or the glossopharyngeal nerve, respectively. Now both of them send their signals to the same place in the brain. What is the name of the place that they send their signals to? So that would be the solitary nucleus of the medulla the solitary nucleus of the medulla. And all of these are really high yield points. So you have increased intracranial pressure. This constricts the arterioles in the brain, leads to cerebral ischemia. That causes the sympathetic nervous system to increase the blood pressure. The increased blood pressure activates the baroreceptors, which I said are located in the aortic arch and carotid sinus. They send their signal through the vagus nerve and glossopharyngeal nerve respectively. Those coalesce in the solitary nucleus of the medulla, which then re lead to the bradycardia. And of course, all the cerebral ischemia causes hypoxia to the respiratory regions, which lead to the disordered breathing. All right, next triad. What is the Beck triad, B-E-C-K? What is the Beck triad?
Good. So that would be hypotension, distended neck veins, and distant heart sounds. Now, what pathology is associated with the Beck triad? So that would be cardiac tamponade. So cardiac tamponade is associated with the Beck triad. Now, what are two key findings that you could see on EKG in cardiac tamponade? So that would be a low voltage QRS and electrical alternans. Now, what is electrical alternans really due to? So electrical alternans is due to the swinging motion of the heart. So essentially you can imagine the heart is surrounded by the pericardium. That's a potential space. There's not normally fluid there. But when fluid does accumulate there, now the heart is kind of just bathing in this fluid. And every time it beats, it could swing left and right and left and right. And that leads to the electrical alternans. And this is a really high yield EKG finding. So I would certainly look up a picture of this. Now, why do you think you get the low voltage QRS? So you get that because again, the heart is surrounded by this fluid. So then when you put the EKG leads on top of the body, um, now the EKG leads are farther away from the electrical signals. So the QRS voltage amplitude looks like it's lower. So this is something that I was always confused about. What is the difference between pericardial effusion and, and cardiac tamponade? What is the difference between those two things? So essentially, pericardial effusion is just when you get fluid that effuses uh, into the pericardium, the, the space that's kind of around the heart. Now, if fluid keeps building up and building up and building up, eventually it restricts the ability for blood to leave the heart, and that is cardiac tamponade. So essentially, pericardial effusion progresses to cardiac tamponade if it gets really bad. It's a continuum. So think about cardiac tamponade as kind of the end stage. Now... The right heart catheterization is a really key follow-up question that sometimes occurs on step one questions. So if you get a right heart catheterization to measure the pressures, what is the classic finding that you see in cardiac tamponade? So that would be equilibration of the diastolic pressures in all four chambers. So normally, the left heart has greater pressures than the right side of the heart, and that's just because the left heart has way more muscle. Now, if you get fluid in the pericardium, each side of the heart gets equal external pressures that are pushing on it from the outside. And what this does is it equilibrates all of the diastolic pressures. So remember the Beck triad, hypotension, distending neck veins, distant heart sounds, cardiac tamponade is the cause, and you see the low voltage QRS, and really important, you see the electrical alternance. And you remember as a spectrum between pericardial effusion on one side leading to cardiac tamponade as an end stage disease there. Okay, next triad. What is the triad for mixed cryoglobinemia? Mixed cryoglobinemia. So that would be palpable purpura, weakness, and arthralgias. And I always remember this with the acronym PAW, P-A-W, palpable purpura, weakness, and arthralgias. Now, as kind of a side point, what are cryoglobulins? Like, what actually are they?
So essentially, cryoglobulins, uh, you have like the presence in the serum of one or more immunoglobins. And these immunoglobins precipitate at temperatures less than 37 degrees Celsius. And then when you reheat them, they actually redissolve on warming. Now, importantly, I said presence in the serum of one or more immunoglobins. So when it's one, it would be called a, a monoclonal cryoglobinemia. When it's more, it'd be called a mixed cryoglobinemia. And the distinction between those two, I think, is a little beyond the scope of step one, but it's really important to know how these things are named. And it's also equally as important to know that this is an in vitro phenomenon. It's a lab result. You kind of get all the immunoglobins in the serum, you cool them down to less than 37 degrees, they all start precipitating. That is called the cryoglobinemia, because cryo is kind of like that prefix referring to cold. And then they redissolve when you warm them up. Now, what is the really high yield association with mixed cryoglobinemia? I'll see if you know it before I give you a hint. So it's a virus, and it would actually be hepatitis C virus. So hepatitis C virus is a really high yield association with a mixed cryoglobinemia. Now, you also get a vasculitis in mixed cryoglobinemia as well. Now, what is that vasculitis due to? Meaning, like, if you were to take a biopsy of it, what would you find? So you would find mixed IgG and IgM immune complex deposition. So mixed cryoglobinemia, remember, it's associated with HCV, and remember, PAW, for palpable purpura, weakness, and arthralgias. And sometimes they could also test a vasculitis. Remember that it's due to mixed IgG and IgM immune complex depositions. Okay, the Whipple triad. What is the Whipple triad? So the Whipple triad is low blood glucose, symptoms of hypoglycemia, and resolution of those symptoms after normalization of the plasma glucose levels. Now, I said that one of them are symptoms of hypoglycemia. What are some symptoms of hypoglycemia that you would look for in a question stem? So that would be lethargy, syncope, and also diplopia. Basically, all the things that could result from having low blood glucose. Now, what is the classic type of tumor associated with the Whipple triad? Good, that would be an insulinoma. So you can imagine that if you have an insulinoma, it's a tumor that's making tons of insulin. All that insulin leads to the hypoglycemia, which leads to the symptoms of hypoglycemia. And then if you replete the glucose, those symptoms go away. So that's the Whipple triad right there. Now, what is a um, insulinoma a tumor of? Like what cell in particular is it a tumor of? So that would be the pancreatic beta cells. Now, because there's beta cells, that means there's also alpha cells. So what do the alpha cells make? Good, the alpha cells make glucagon, which kind of work as an antagonistic function to insulin. Now, as a follow-up question, and this is something that does show up in the biochemistry portion of step one, what type of hormone is insulin? I'll, I'll kind of make it into a multiple choice question. Is it a peptide hormone, a steroid hormone, or an amino acid derivative? So insulin is a peptide hormone. And the high yield thing about peptide hormones is that they're produced as pro-hormones and they undergo some sort of modification to make it into the active form of the hormone. Now, uh, like what is the classic example of a steroid hormone? Like, like what are steroid hormones come from? There's a key molecule. 
So all steroid hormones are mostly produced from cholesterol. An example of that would be estrogen. And then the third type is an amino acid derivative. And as the name suggests, these are produced from amino acids. An example of this would be like tyrosine. If you look at the tyrosine um, kind of metabolism pathway, it can end up making norepinephrine. So norepinephrine could be an example of amino acid derivative. Now, how can you differentiate an insulinoma from exogenous insulin use using lab assays? So insulinomas will actually have elevated C-peptide levels, whereas exogenous insulin use will have normal C-peptide levels. So C-peptide is a peptide that's co-produced with insulin, and when you make insulin from the body, or if you make insulin endogenously, you also make C-peptide. So you can imagine if you're an exogenous insulin user, you're going to be getting insulin in your blood, but you're not going to be getting that C-peptide. Now, what is the classic demographic of an exogenous insulin user? Like if you were to get a question about this, what would be the classic person uh, or patient that would have this sort of pathology? So this is usually someone related to healthcare or someone with a spouse that has insulin as a med. So like if it's uh, a, a patient that's presenting and their spouse has diabetes, they might not exactly say that the spouse uses insulin, but you might have to uh, kind of presume this when you're presented with the question. Okay, next, what is the portal triad? So the portal triad is the proper hepatic artery the portal vein, and the common bile duct. Now, what ligament is the portal triad housed in? Good, so it's housed in the hepatoduodenal ligament. Now, what does the hepatoduodenal ligament connect? So as the name suggests, it connects the liver to the duodenum. And I know we've done this in this episode and some other episodes as well, but in step one, it's super high yield to be able to kind of break down the word, know the prefix, know the suffix. It really does tell you a lot. Now, this portal triad, during surgery, this is a really high source of blood and vascular accidents can lead to some very profound hypertension or hypotension rather intraoperatively. So what is the name of the maneuver which actually mitigates this bleeding intraoperatively? Good. So this is called the Pringle maneuver. Now, in the Pringle maneuver, you put a clamp on the hepatoduodenal ligament. And remember, the hepatoduodenal ligament has the portal triad, which includes the hepatic artery. So when you put a clamp on it, you're preventing blood from coming in through the hepatic artery, which kind of controls the bleeding during the surgery. All right, so that sums up part two of this triad episode. There's going to be a part three to include some other ones. I just didn't want to make this episode super long. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, be on the lookout for the next episode. And as always, I really hope you found this useful.